We've been reading about uh, events in the history of ancient Israel, recorded for us in the book of Numbers, uh, which is more accurately termed in the wilderness, because it has to do, as I think you know by now, it has to do with their journey from point A to point B. Point A was bondage, and point B is ultimate arrival at their land of promise. But in between, there's some bumps in the road. And God gave guidelines for their journey in the wilderness so that they could make it through intact, whole, in harmony, and ready to enter into their land of promise. And God is good, and so he recorded their experiences, good and bad, for us today so that in the course of our wilderness wanderings, we could learn from their experience. We can journey even with more effectiveness uh, than they did. And so this is the book of Numbers. And tonight I wanted to share with you some thoughts from chapters 3 and 4. They're lengthy, but do not panic. I shall summarize uh, the contents. In some, Numbers chapter 3 has to do with uh, responsibilities, tasks delegated to priests and Levites while the people were in camp. And chapter 4 uh, talks about delegated tasks and responsibilities given to priests and Levites, not while the people were in camp, but while they were on the move. So there you have generally a breakdown between the two chapters. So now let me call your attention to some parts of Numbers chapter 3, and I think this will be, I hope, helpful and stimulating to you as we journey through our wilderness on the way to our land of promise. So here's chapter 3 of Numbers. Verse 1, these are the records of the generations of Aaron and Moses at the time when the Lord spoke with Moses on Mount Sinai. Now, why is that important? Someone's genealogy, a record of someone's family connection. It is important because the priests and the Levites come from the line of these two men, Aaron in particular. Because this text concerns the priests and the Levites, we need to see their point of origin. It's with Aaron. And so it continues in verse 2. These then are the names of the sons of Aaron. It is the sons of Aaron who will serve as priests. Nobody else could. This is God's idea. You had to be a direct descendant of Aaron in order to qualify as someone who could serve in the tabernacle as a priest. He had four sons, and their names are given right here. Nadab, the oldest, the firstborn, Abihu, and then there's Eleazar and Itamar. These are the names of the sons of Aaron. It's so important that it's recorded for us down to this very day. They're referred to as the anointed by God, the anointed priests whom he ordained to serve as priest. But this isn't good. Nadab and Abihu died. They died before the Lord when they offered strange fire. We don't know specifically what it is, but while they were officiating in the role of priests at the altar of sacrifice, we're told they offered strange fire. The sense is uh, beyond the bounds. The, the sense is unauthorized fire. Folks, here's the point. What they did was plenty hot, but it wasn't of God. Will you ask God to give you critical thinking and discernment? Because in our day, there's a whole lot of hot stuff going on in the name of Christ that I think has no legitimate connection to Christ. It may be hot, but it may not be holy fire. Be careful. Don't jump into it just because it's hot. Make sure it's authorized fire. Well, they offered unauthorized fire, and they paid quite a penalty before the Lord. They died. So that leaves only two descendants, direct descendants of Aaron, his two other sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, and so they serve as priests. It's a lifetime assignment. And then we read in verse 5, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, bring the tribe of Levi near, set them before Aaron the priest that they may serve him. Here is a divinely ordained subordinate role to an entire tribe called Levites because Aaron and his sons, the only authorized priests, could not handle the priestly duties when you think of two and a half to three million Israelites wandering through the desert. And so God, this was a privilege. Remember, the Levites stood up at the time when the people demanded a golden calf. 
Remember, Moses came down and expressed sore displeasure. And the Levites stood up and took a stand. And they said, no, we will stand with you. We will serve the living God. And as a reward, God ordained that they would serve as subordinates to the priests around the tabernacle and later the more permanent temple. And so Aaron and his sons needed assistance. Here they are, the entire tribe of Levi. It goes on to furthermore say in verse 7, they shall perform the duties for him, Aaron that is, and for the whole congregation before the tent of meeting to do the service of the tabernacle. Remember, this was a portable shrine, a symbol of the presence of God. In fact, God said, I will take up my abode in it. Here is the point of contact between you and me. You couldn't have one if I didn't provide it for you. I am transcendent. You can't do enough to elevate yourself so as to be in connection with me. So I stoop low. In the form of a tab, here's where you will meet with me at this tabernacle. But it takes on a, an intensely holy character because it's a representation of the presence of holy God. It says in verse 8, they shall also keep all the furnishings of the tent of meeting along with the duties of the sons of Israel to do the service of the tabernacle. You shall thus give the Levites to Aaron and to his sons They are wholly given to him from among the sons of Israel. So, folks, Aaron and his sons were also Levites. So every priest was a Levite, but not every Levite was a priest. Do you follow me? So, So that's the distinction when you read in the Bible between priests and Levites. A priest is a direct descendant of Aaron only. That's it. It's limited. Aaron and his sons are Levites, but not all Levites are direct descendants of Aaron. So every priest is a Levite, but not every Levite is a priest. So it says in verse 10, you shall appoint Aaron and his sons. Those are the priests that they may keep their priesthood. But the layman who comes near shall be put to death. Uh, The actual Hebrew word is uh, unauthorized person. In this case, based on the context, it would be a Levite. Aaron and his sons, the priest, had certain special access to the holy places within the tabernacle. But an unauthorized one, a Levite, must not come near. That's what it says. The penalty is death. That is serious business. Here's the point. God is close. He established his presence in the midst of the people, even in their wilderness wanderings, in the form of the tabernacle. And though the closeness of God is a great blessing, it's also a potential temptation for us that we must avoid. It's dangerous because the nearness, accessibility, and closeness of God can create such a familiarity on our part that we reduce and diminish his holiness. We have to maintain the tension between the transcendence of God and his nearness. He's not my pal nor yours. He's not the big guy from upstairs who came downstairs. He's not the co-pilot. He's not the man. He's unapproachably holy God. In fact, he's so intensely holy that even if a Levite approached him in an unworthy manner, he would do so under pain of death. This whole thing is so overwhelming to me, it reminds me of how I underestimate the uncompromising holiness of God. And I make the same error. I'm a Christian. I walk with him. I talk with him. He touched me. I can go home tonight when we take leave of one another and get in my Honda and on the way from here to Pearland, I will talk. To Almighty God, I'm going to just wear this little deal. I don't have any vestments or anything like that. There'll be no incense in the car. There'll be no other mediators save the Lord Jesus Christ. And based on my relationship with him, I'm going to have access to the throne of grace of Almighty God. That is wonderful. But I got to be careful. Wait just a second. I don't want to be fearful of God, but I want to pay respect. I want to show deference. I want to revere him. He is worthy of respect. 
He's not like me. He's, he's wholly other than me. He came and fleshed to be with us, to tabernacle amongst us. Thank him for it. I understand that. But be careful. Be careful. He's not like us. He's man, but he's the God-man. He's the sinless one. He's the only one. He has no beginning nor any end. You do. He knows all things. You don't. He's not limited to space and time. You are. He is not tempted by sin. You and I are. He is all-powerful. You're not. He's omnipresent. You aren't. He is holy. You're not. He's good by nature. You're not. I am not God. Neither are you. I thank him for the connection which he's enabled between us and him. But I want to be careful of retaining at the same time his unapproachable holiness. And this book of Numbers has really helped me to do so. I hope it helps you. You're going to see the precise detail, the specificity, the precision with which God said, this is how you can and will approach me. But any other approach will meet with your death. You cannot take it upon yourself to approach me in an unholy manner. I am a consuming fire. You must show respect to my uncompromising holiness. And so that's what it says. Over here, the layman shall be put to death, the one who comes near. Now, in the following verses, in chapter 3, is the specific delineation of the duties given to the Levites with regard to the tabernacle when the people are in camp. And then we end with an enumeration of the number of these. It's in verse 39. Remember, God said to Moses, don't count them for war. Why? Because they're to be numbered for a war of a different kind. It's a battle for the minds and hearts of the people when in camp. It's a battle to persuade the people that though God is their God and near, he is holy. He is unapproachably holy unless he provides a means of approach. And so they're numbered here. Verse 39 tells us all of them whom Moses and Aaron numbered at the command of the Lord by their families. Every male from a month old and upward were 22,000, 22,000 Levites. Now we move to chapter four, which continues to speak of the responsibilities uh, with regard to the care of the tabernacle given to the Levites here when the people are on the march. So follow along at the beginning of chapter four with me. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, take a census. Of the descendants of Kohath. Kohath was a tribe, a subsidiary group of Levites. The Kohathites were Levites. Take a census of them from among the sons of Levi, by their families, by their father's household, from 30 years old and upward, 30 years even to 50. Interesting. When an enumeration was made of eligible fighting men, it began at what age? 20. But here, uh, in the enumeration of the Levites, it begins at 30. I guess it takes a little more maturity to be a minister than to be a military man. It's just a personal application I'm making here from the text. So number them from 30 to 50. All who entered the service to do the work in the tent of meeting. This is the work of the descendants of Kohath in the tent of meeting concerning, look what it says, The most holy things. The most holy things. What are those? They are items in the tabernacle of such closeness, such proximity to the presence of Almighty God that they have taken on the character of holiness which they do not inherently possess. They may have been common things, but now they are most holy things because they are in such close proximity to the most holy God. Whatever he lays his hand on, whatever he touches is suddenly transformed from that which is common and profane 
to that which becomes a most holy thing. The Kohathites, a branch of the Levites, were given the extraordinary privilege of being caretakers of the most holy things. And so it says in verse 5, when the camp sets out, Aaron and his sons shall go in, shall go in to the tabernacle, and they shall take down the veil of the screen and cover the ark of the testimony with it. The Kohathites, Levites, were given watch care over the most holy things, but only the priests could actually make contact with them. And so to dismantle the tabernacle was a task reserved only for Aaron and his direct descendants. Only they could make a way into the most holy place of the tabernacle. Nobody else could follow but the priest, Aaron, the high priest. It takes a high priest to remove the veil that separates us from the most holy place. Hey, let me skip just a little bit for weeks ahead because I'm too excited. Do you realize our most high priest who made the way, who pierced the veil so that we could go through? What's his name? Yeah, when he was crucified, what happened to the veil of the temple? Yeah, it was torn asunder. Now, I have more appreciation for that having studied here in Numbers to see what limited access there was to this holy place and to realize now I have access to the most holy place through the blood of my high priest, the Lord Jesus. Oh, my goodness. I'm not a descendant of Aaron and neither are you. And yet God refers to us as a royal priesthood today. So we have those privileges of access to the most holy place because of our high priest and what he has done. Okay, here. So Aaron, not the Levites, and his sons had to take down the veil. It was a curtain separating the holy place, a room, from the most holy place, another room. In this room, the most holy place, was housed the Ark of the Covenant, in which was, what was in the Ark of the Covenant? The Ten Commandments, the Word of God. Holy, holy, holy. Nobody could make touch uh, contact with it. Nobody could touch it. Aaron and the priest, that's it. Take down the veil. Don't let the Levites look upon the Ark of the Covenant. Don't let them touch it. You, Aaron, the priests, only you have this kind of direct contact with it. Cover it with the veil. Do this. Don't let anyone else come near. And this is so important that in Exodus... When God called Moses up on Mount Sinai in order to give him the Ten Commandments, do you know he didn't just give him the Ten Commandments? He gave him about five chapters of instructions with regard to how to construct in a very precise and specific way every item in the tabernacle. You could read this, Exodus 25 to 30. It's all about the furnishings in the tabernacle. For instance, let me read to you the description just of the veil as recorded in Exodus chapter 26. You shall make a veil. This is God commanding Moses. You shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen. It shall be made with cherubim, angels, the work of a skillful workman. You shall hang it on four pillars of acacia, it's wood, overlaid with gold. Their hooks also being of gold on four sockets of silver. You shall hang up the veil under the clasps and shall bring in the ark of the testimony there within the veil. And the veil shall serve for you as a partition between the holy place and the holy of holies. I make no apology about... Uh, taking your time to read this because God gave it. It reminds us of how holy he is. Every aspect of our approach to him is taken into account by him. Everything about our access to him is important. It cannot be done casually, flippantly. It cannot be done disrespectfully. Please do not distort the marvelous freeing truth of grace. 
don't do that by reducing the unapproachable holiness of Almighty God. Your Father is approachable, but He can only be approachable His way. Any other means of approach uh, can have serious consequences. It's a very dangerous thing to try to lay hands of a holy God with your own unholy hands. Don't do it. They have to be washed in the blood. They have to be washed in the blood, you see? And so God took note of every detail. Levites were not to look upon what was in the holy place nor touch it, only Aaron and the priests. In verse 6, they, the priests, shall lay a covering of porpoise skin on it and shall spread over it a cloth of pure blue and shall insert its poles. The blue color indicated here is actually probably more like a royal violet color because it came, the violet dye, from various varieties, from the glands of various varieties of snails, which are found even today along the Mediterranean coast in the Holy Land. Now, the point is, this color would be very noticeable. This blue or this this rich royal violet would be so noticeable that the, the Levites would make no mistake about it. They would quickly be aware of the most holy objects covered by this royal violet material. And that was the point, to mark it, to separate it as being most holy, not to be touched. And so after the coverings, have been placed over the Ark of the Covenant. Wooden poles overlaid with gold were inserted into gold rings in order to facilitate transporting the Ark without touching it directly. Without touching it directly. He's holy. God is most, most... You know, can I tell you this as an aside? When I was a little Jewish kid... um, we attend, attended something called yeshiva, which would be, if you're from a Catholic background, maybe you attended Catholic, grew up in Catholic school. It's the same deal. It's like Catholic school for, for little Jewish kids. And, and instead of rabbi, uh, priests, we got rabbis and, and, you know, stuff like that. And uh, I remember they used to teach us things about God. Never anything about how to have a personal relationship with God. Never, ever how to approach God. But I must tell you, one thing I got and maybe those of you from uh, similar backgrounds, maybe from a Catholic background, maybe you've gotten this as well. Don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Maybe you've gotten a notion of the transcendence of God. I know I got that from my religion. I didn't know how to access God. My religion couldn't teach me that. But my religion at least gave me a notion of the fact that God was holy, transcendent. I remember if we had the scriptures in our hand, in a text, and if it fell accidentally to the ground, we would have to fast an entire day. I remember if we had the scriptures, in our case it wasn't the full Bible, it's just the Old Testament scriptures, we could never put anything on top of it. It would, it would be a, a sign of disrespect. We could never open it the wrong way. We would never l- lay it on the ground. We could never, I don't want to be too graphic, but we could never take a thought of God with us into a lavatory, into a restroom. We were taught about, we were taught about these things. We were taught how to stand. We were taught how to kneel. We were taught how to bow. For those of you from uh, certain liturgical backgrounds, maybe Catholic backgrounds, maybe understand what I'm saying. Now, for you and I, the battle is not to appreciate the transcendence of God. It's to appreciate the closeness of God. You see, my, back, my religion didn't teach me that, and neither did yours if you're from a Catholic background. You don't understand how to access God any more than I did. But at least we had a notion, not only of the existence of God, but of, of the holy otherness of God. And I think it emanates from, from this tradition here in, in the Bible. Be careful how you approach God. He's intensely Holy. And so, for instance, let me read you this from Exodus 25, just about the poles. They shall construct an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, and one and a half cubits wide, and one and a half cubits high. You shall overlay it with pure gold, inside and out. You shall overlay it. You shall make a gold molding around it. You shall cast four gold rings for it and fasten them. On its four feet. And two rings shall be on one side of it. And two rings on the other side. 
You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark with them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be removed from it. There's Moses. He's on Mount Sinai. The mountain is quaking. The people are trembling. There's thunder. There's lightning. I can understand enthusiasm about receiving the Ten Commandments. But God told him how to make poles. Poles. So as to carry the Ark of the Covenant without becoming so familiar with it that they took it lightly, took it for granted, treated it with disrespect. May it never be that we, people who have a personal relationship with Almighty God, treat him with disrespect. Be so familiar that we're reducing and diminishing his holiness. I'm going to lead to something before we lead tonight. Folks, the world doesn't need to see more Christians. It needs to see more Christians living a holy lifestyle. Otherwise, we just look like everybody else. It's not good. We can't do it. It's not permissible. Free access to God. But not flimsy, lackadaisical access to God. Ease of relationship with God. Because Jesus made the way. He's the mediator of a better covenant. But let me not misinterpret the ease of access to God. With the fact that God is reduced in his holiness. Oh, no, no. That I'm saved from my unholiness. I am to live a holy life. So are you. I'm not to be like everybody else. I'm not to see the movies everybody else sees. I'm not to use my computer the way everybody else does. I'm not to gamble the way people do. I'm not to play the lottery the way people... I'm not to drink the way... I'm not... This is a holy God. Let the world see a holy people. And be attracted. Not a people who statistically look like everybody else. Same divorce rate. Come on. Come on. They would die if they touched the Ark of the Covenant. God's covenant people. We're extinguishing his testimony in us and through us because we're looking like everybody else in the world. And he said, you shall be holy for I am holy. And I'm trying to be like everybody else. And he said, I called you to be different. Don't do it. Don't live below your calling. You shall be holy. For I, your savior, says am holy. So it goes on, verse 7. You forgive me, I'm getting carried away. Angels bow before him. He's holy. Verse 7. Over the table of the bread of the presence, they shall spread a cloth of blue and put it on the dishes and the pans and the sacrificial bowls and the jars for the drink offering. And continual bread shall be on it. They shall spread over them a cloth of scarlet material and cover the same with a covering of porpoise skin. They shall insert its poles. This is the table of the bread of the presence made of gold. Gold overlaying acacia wood upon which were set 12 loaves of of bread, the bread of the presence, one for each of the tribes of Israel. They were to be covered with a fitted garment of violet cloth. This is not a food offering as with pagan deities. Let's give our God food lest he go hungry. (laughs) This is the symbol of God giving the bread of life to his people. He is self-sustaining. He doesn't need food. He doesn't need anything from us. This is the food he's giving his priests. This is the bread of the presence where God is present. There will be the satisfaction of your needs. He will give you your daily Bread. That's what this is. That's what this is about. They were to be replaced, these 12 loaves, every Sabbath by the priests, symbols of God's provision and presence. The bowls, the jars, the jugs, utensils, bread were to be set 
on the blue cloth. And then they would be covered with a scarlet cloth and, and then with a yellow orange covering of skins. And so the Ark of the Covenant and the table of the presence had three layers of covering. They were the most holy things. Verse 9, then take a blue cloth, cover the lampstand with all its lamps and trays and snuffers. The seven-branched candelabra symbol of the fact that Almighty God is the light of the world. If he touched you, you've been enlightened by him. You see like you never saw before. You've been delivered from darkness into his marvelous light. And this candelabra, this thing, this piece, had to be uh, constructed in a precise way. Can I share with you a bit of a lengthy... Listen, God gave it in the Bible. We should listen to it. Exodus 25, just about the lampstand. Listen. Then you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand and its base and its shaft are to be made of hammered work. Its cups, its bulbs, its flowers shall be one piece with it. Six branches shall go out from its sides. Three branches of the lampstand from its one side and three from the other. Three cups shall be shaped like almond blossoms in one branch, a bulb and a flower. Three cups shaped like almond blossoms in the other branch, a bulb and a flower. So for six branches going out from the lampstand and in the lampstand, four cups shaped like almond blossoms, its bulbs and its flowers. A bulb shall be under the first pair of branches coming out of it and a bulb under the second pair of branches coming out of it and a bulb under the third pair of branches coming out of it for the six branches coming out of the lampstand. Their bulbs and their branches shall be of one piece with it. And all of it shall be one piece of hammered work of pure gold. Then you shall make its lamps seven in number. And they shall mount its lamps so as to shed light on the space in front of it. Its snuffers and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made from a talent of pure gold. With all these utensils, see that you make them after the pattern for them, which was shown to you on the mountain. Everything, everything pertaining to Almighty God takes on a holy character. Everything with respect to how we approach him takes on a holy character. He did not leave it to chance. He specified measurements, materials, designs. Everything had to be done a particular way. This was not the work of an artisan, someone whose creativity went wild. God ordained this just as clearly as he ordained for us to live by the Ten Commandments. He gave this material at the same time he gave the Ten Commandments. What God stands for, his moral character is reflected in the Ten Commandments are important and so is the construction of the tabernacle and its furnishings because they all have to do with our awareness of the presence and holiness of Almighty God. Well, then the text in Numbers chapter 4 goes on, verse 12. They shall take all the utensils of service, put them in blue cloth, cover them with porpoise skin, put them on carrying bars, take away the ashes from the altar, spread a purple cloth over it. They shall also put on it utensils by which they serve, fire pans, forks, shovels, basins, Spread a cover of porpoise skin over it. Verse 15, when Aaron and his sons have finished cover, when Aaron and his sons, only the priests, have finished covering the holy objects and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is to set out, after that the sons of Kohath shall come to carry them. They could carry them, but they could not touch them directly so that they will not touch the holy objects and die. These are the things in the tent of meeting which the sons of Kohath are to carry. He, Almighty God, was present with the people, but he was wholly other than them. And all this is designed to maintain the categorical distinction. I am the God-man, but don't forget, I am the God-man. I'm not your pal. I'm not your buddy. I'm not here to be at your beck and call. You are redeemed to glorify me. 
And our churches are filled with takers today who are looking not to a holy God, but to some kind of divine Santa Claus. Give me this, give me that, and if you don't, I'm through with you. The calling is not to have our way at the hands of a holy God. The calling is to fall at the feet of a holy God. I make petitions. I ask him for my healing. I ask him for a job. I ask him for a baby. I ask him for a life partner. Then I accept his answer. Then I defer to him. And I say, thank you, most holy God, for lovingly hearing. Thank you for keeping from me what is not in my best interest. And, oh, God, whatever comes my way or doesn't, I bow before you, for you are the most holy God. I don't lay claim to your givingness. I lay hold. I lay claim to your holiness. It's a different day in which we live. It's a Santa Claus day. This is a bow down before God commandment I'm reading about here. And so it says in verse 17, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, don't let the tribe of the families of the Kohathites be cut off. Do this for them that they may live and not die when they approach the most holy objects. Aaron and his son shall go in, but they shall not go in to see the holy objects even for a moment or they will die. You know what God is saying? Priests, believer priests, <laughs> preach to people. Yes, about the goodness of God. Preach to people about all of his merits, but preach to people about his holiness and their unholiness. Don't let them go in. Don't let them think they can call upon his name so frivolously and leave unscathed. Remind them of the holiness of God. Listen, I love our mission statement. We are to be living proof of a loving God. How about this? We are to be living proof of a holy God to a watching world. Yeah, that's what it says. Okay, here, folks. The priests were custodians of holy things, right? The priests were custodians of holy things. The priests must ensure that these holy things were not mishandled. So let me say this. My fellow priests. Am I biblically correct? Yeah, First Peter 2.9. Check it out. First Peter 2.9. But you are a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Yeah. The priests, we are custodians of holy. Do you know you have a purpose you're a custodian, nonetheless, no less than they were, of holy things. And what are those holy things? You, I, we are custodians of God's holy word. Don't diminish it. Don't misuse it. Don't disobey it. Don't treat it lightly. We are custodians of God's holy spirit. Don't quench him through sin. We are custodians of God's holy reputation. Don't misunderstand. Where sin abounds, grace superabounds. But when we sin, we cast dispersions on the holy reputation of Almighty God. The world does not need more Christians. We've got enough to win it. But we can't win them away from the world if we are in the world to the extent that the world has gotten into us. Holy living 
is our calling. It's not the prerequisite for salvation. I didn't say that. We have been saved from our unholinesses. <laughs> we have been saved in spite of our unholiness. He saved us not because of deeds done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy. But now that we have been saved, it is our calling to participate in a commitment to devotedly holy living. What do you watch? What do you take in? What do you do with your hands? What relationships are you in? What do you take that is not yours? What do you smoke? What movies do you see? What? 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 We're compromising our testimony. We look like everybody else. So, so, so holy living is not the means of salvation. Holy living is a way of expressing gratitude to God who is intensely holy and who saved us out of our unholinesses. And so it says this in Hebrews chapter 12, 28 and 29. Listen, therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, I'm passing through the wilderness journey. So are you to gain entrance fully into a kingdom which cannot be shaken. It's assured, it's certain, it's given. Since, not if, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. What do we do? Take it lightly? Be lackadaisical? No. Let us show gratitude. That's what it says. By which we may offer to God an acceptable servants, service with reverence and awe for our God. I know him personally and so do you, but he still remains our God is a consuming fire. Holiness is the chief attribute of God. Holiness is a quality, therefore, to be developed in the people of God. We are to be living proof of a holy God. Holiness is our fundamental calling. Holiness means separation from that which is unholy. Holy things are things simply that have been taken out of common use and have been given over to the service of a holy God. You want to know something? You are a holy thing. By virtue of your salvation, you have been taken out of common use and given over to the service of a holy God. How are you doing as a custodian of holy things? I'm asking myself, how am I doing? How are you doing as custodians of holy things? What do you have to do tonight when you go home that you have to get rid of? What locks do you have to put on certain channels on your TV? What books, what magazines do you don't need to have around? What beverages do you not need to have there? What pastimes? What recreation? It's unbelievable how much money we're spending on recreation. What recreation is it's just unholy. It's just not right. Are you so bored? Am I so bored? How much do I desire to fit in? Do you desire to fit in so that people like us so that I compromise? What jokes do you laugh at? What jokes do you tell? What clothing do you wear? How tight is it? How short is it? How low cut is it? Fashion? Saved by grace. It's the only way. And now that we are, each person made a custodian of holy things. You are a holy thing. So I want to ask you something now. Enough, enough said. Um, this is November 10th. Would you like to rededicate your life to the holy pursuit of a holy God? Not unto salvation. No, no, don't misunderstand. He saved us by grace alone, through faith alone, through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus alone. No, no, no. We've gotten off to a good start. <laughs> Maybe in our wilderness journey, <laughs> we've gotten off track. I wonder, I wonder if you would want to 
transact some private business with the Lord publicly. wonder if you'd like to come to the altar. Join me. I want to make a public recommitment to holy living to the Lord Jesus. It could be that some here have certain unholinesses. You have got to surrender. You don't have to confess that to us. It could be that you want to kind of nail the stake in the ground and get rid of it. Could be that you want to accept the Lord's cleansing and pardon and forgiveness and say, Oh God, I have not been a good custodian of holy things. I'm a priest like these. I've treated you with such familiarity. I've approached you with unholy hands. Oh God, I accept your forgiveness. I will not crucify myself. The Lord Jesus has been crucified for me. But oh God, restore me. Get me on the right path in my wilderness wandering. This is the path of of holy living. Maybe you want to do that. So I wonder if I could ask you you all to stand just to make it easy for folks who want to make their way forward. And then I haven't spoken to our beloved pastor about this, but I greatly desire, pastor, to be prayed for by you. I got off to a good start in the Christian life, and I'm doing pretty good. But I'm afraid that I won't finish well. People fall. People get into trouble. I don't want to forfeit hearing from the Lord, well done, good and holy servant. I want that, but I'm tempted like you are. I live in the world just like you are. I would love the, I would love the prayer of, of, of the senior pastor, uh, that, that there would be an inclination towards holy living, that, 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 that I would make my way in this direction, that I would be kept from temptation, that I would confess sin, turn from it, that's repentance, and turn back to Almighty God. You might be more comfortable transacting some, some of this business with the Lord right where you are. That's fine. Others, please come forward. Join us here as we humble ourselves before Almighty God. He's a holy God. He's the only one to bow before. Don't bow before the altar of pleasure, sin, which is pleasurable for a season, worldliness, unholiness as, yeah, bow before the altar of a holy God. Pastor, could I ask you to come and intercede for us? We really, really desire your prayers. Folks, we're going to get in a new building, but we are to be the new building before we get into the new building. Father, we long for holiness. Christ in us, the hope. And Father, I bow my heart as many are bowing their knees and their heads before you and a sincere plea for you to move among us and have freedom to use whatever you've given to us for your glory. Every spiritual gift, every family, every marriage, every child, every grandchild, every company, our country, our community, our city, our state. Lord, we just lay our life down before you. And as we honor these veterans tonight, we plead that you might make us a veteran of holiness. Totally and completely committed unto you that those that know us best will love you the most because they have seen you in our lives. Oh, God, I pray that you will just do through the Holy Spirit what only you can do to each of us individually. that dark spot in our life that needs a light of your grace and glory. Deal with us. May we be honest and look into our spiritual mirrors tonight and you would show us what you want us to be. Thank you for your written word. Thank you for your living example. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that convicts us as it enlightens us in interpreting the word to us. And, and Father, I pray that no one 
hear will feel left out when we hear the plea out of heaven, be ye holy as I am holy. May we be a holy people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a holy family, and a holy person, a holy church. And so, Father, we just wait in anticipation of what you're going to do in each individual life that is available, each person and family that's available. And, Lord, we just ask you to show us every day what you're up to and where you want us to be and what you want us to be doing as well as what you want us to be saying. Bless every family that's represented tonight at this altar and in this building. Bless every individual person, one of a kind, And may we see Jesus, even as we go to sleep tonight, may we be thinking about you. When we wake up in the morning, may we be thinking about you. When we look around at all the things that are bringing fear to the hearts of many, may they bring faith to the hearts of your children. That you are still King of kings and Lord of lords. And everything that is in us that doesn't look like you, we ask you to remove it. And may we not look to the right or to the left for what's my alternative. For there's one God and one mediator, and that's Jesus. And there's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. That you are the way, the truth, and the life. And that holiness is not an option if we're going to be everything you've created us to be. So bless us with your presence. Do not let us turn to the right or to the left from wherever you lead. May we follow. And we ask it in Jesus' name. The name again above every name. Amen and amen.